Hi there, and uh, welcome to the IWSCC podcast. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Deidre Guy, and I am the founder of the Inclusive Workplace and Supply Council of Canada, which is a certifying council that certifies companies that are owned uh, at least 51% owned, operated, and controlled by either someone with a disability, uh, one or more people with a disability, or one or more veterans, and of course, often those two intersect. Um, so I'm really pleased today to have you here. Um, our our uh, video, if you happen to be watching uh, on YouTube, you'll see that we have uh, ASL interpretation, and that is brought to you by Maple Communications Canada. And thank you so much to Remote Video for our production of this podcast today. I'm so excited to introduce you and, all, and to myself, actually, uh, someone that I met recently by the name of Bradley Shepard. Uh, we are just chit-chatting. He is a veteran and, and interested in the idea of becoming certified with the IWSCC. And when we talked uh, in depth about what some of the things that he does with his company, I was just blown away and thought, okay, we, we need to have him on our podcast so we can learn about what he does and the experiences that he's got. So thank you so much for being here, Bradley. I really appreciate it. And uh, I guess we'll just get just jump right in and get started. So who is Bradley Shepard and, and what is it that you do right now? Well, first, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, who is Bradley Shepard? Bradley Shepard, I'm from um, Whitney Pier, which is a cultural mosaic or a melting pot community located in Cape Breton Island in Nova Scotia. So I'm at the very far east coast of, uh, of this beautiful country. And um, I've been born and raised here, so I've lived here my whole life and was lucky enough um, to serve in the Canadian Armed Forces for a number of years as a, as a combat engineer. And so with that experience or with that, that position, I was traveled all over the place. I've done a lot of interesting things, helped in, and met a lot of interesting people. And you know, it's, it's kind of those skills I acquired along the way, in, both in the Army and in post-secondary, um, and taking those skills and kind of wanting to give back and want to add service. And so that's where the, the DEI training comes in. And so I've been, I've been fortunate enough to be working with multiple uh, community partners over the last number of years, talking about things that matter in the workplace. Um, and a lot of those things we, we call um, part of the safety net or a safe space. So they include diversity, equity and inclusion, but it also involves, uh, you know, self-awareness. It involves emotional intelligence, leadership, um, things of that nature. So I'm glad I get a chance to help people and I'm glad that I get to uh, meet people like you. Yeah, I was really happy to meet you as well. I'm looking forward to learning so much more. Um, so, okay, so safe to say you're no longer in the military, you've transitioned out. How long has that been? Correct, so I, re I joined in 2000 and I retired in November, 2020. So 20 years okay. to the month. Wow, yeah, that's uh, that's exceptional. Thank you very much. So you 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 credit your your graduate education as being an and maybe I'm going to pronounce this wrong, so please correct me if I do. But Afrocentric Afrocentric leadership mm -hmm. uh, and lifelong learning. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, I think I'll start in the Afrocentric leadership part. So when people think Afrocentricity, sometimes you think it's uh, you know it's pro black. It's anti this, anti white, um, you know, whatever the case may be. What, what Afrocentrism does, it just centers our story. Um, and so it talks about the, the unique history of pe African peoples throughout the diaspora. And the diaspora is, you know, starting in the continent and as we moved out over time. Um, and it really focuses on things, uh, principles. So self determination, 
cooperative economics, um, you know, mutual responsibility, things of that nature. And so it just taught me that, you know, what I was taught was different than what we're taught in school. In school, our history starts at slavery. Uh, when we come across, you know, they might talk about some kingdoms in Africa or Egypt, which is part of Africa. But mm-hmm. when you get into Afrocentricity, you, st- you start to talk about all the great things people of African descent did. Um, and some of that involves suffering, uh, especially throughout the tr- transatlantic slave trade and whatnot. But it really instills a, a sense of, of, of who you are, because we always say uh, in our community, we use the term Sankofa. And Sankofa basically says you have to know where you're coming from in order to understand where you're going. And that's what Afrocentrism does to to someone like me. It centers my history. That's uh, that is very cool. Um, and I love that concept. Say that again. You have to know where you came from. Yeah, you have to know your past to know your future. So you have to know where you came from right. to know where you're going. Right. Because sometimes if we don't have that solid foundation or moral compass, I call it, we can get lost and chewed up in this world. And, you know, in this job, I am constantly learning. And so it, it does strike me as, yeah, I, I often think about sort of the, the knowledge and the, and the history that we learn about slavery as a separate entity from what I've learned about Africa. And, and so I think you're, it's so important to understand, and I thank you for sharing that, that, that those two sort of one graduates into the other uh, and, and, and they are connected in such a large way. Um, I don't want to change topics, but I think we're going to get into this a little bit more as we talk a little further. But I, I do want to find out sort of going back in your life a little bit, what made you decide to join the military? You know, what? it's actually a funny story. So um, I've had people in my life that have been in the military. So before I was born, my father and my uncle were in it. Uh, but one day I was working since a young age. Um, you know, my mother was the only one that worked at the time and I have two sisters. So, you know, there was a lot, there wasn't much money flowing in our house. And so at a young age, I delivered papers. And one morning I'm delivering the paper and I look and there's this guy on the front and he's out in the woods, out in the field, as we'd call it, in the middle of winter, sitting on something. And he was eating what we call ration packs. Right. And I'm like, I'm freezing right now in the middle. It's 6 a.m. I was like, I can do that. Right. And so, you know, I didn't really want to go to work at a fast food restaurant. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But I just said, let me give this a shot. And it was really that picture uh, of this gentleman who who kind of became a mentor of mine um, that got me got me involved. And I, I think I thank him for that all the time. So you went and spoke to him that time when you saw him? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I ran into him and I was like, what's this military thing? The army's like, oh, you can yeah. do this. You make this amount of money. You get to go blow shit up, you know, do all these cool <laughs> things. And I was like, that is for me. And so in the combat engineers, uh, that's what we do is we help, we assist friendly forces, like building bridges, but we also, you know, help defeat the enemy and blow holes in the ground and you see four. So you got to, I credit the, my friend for getting me into it. Well, that's, that's fantastic. And so did you end up spending a lot of time with him during your service or were you were you guys separated? I did. I did. But he was a few ranks higher than me. So we weren't like buddy, buddy in, in you right. know, while in uniform. But once we took the uniform off, we had a lot in common. Uh, one, we were two of maybe, I don't know, two of very few black people on one of the biggest right. bases in our country. And yeah. we're also from the same community. So we kind of had a little bit of um, connection with that. So... I wonder what would have happened if you had not run into him. Do you ever think of that? 
Do you think you would have graduated to the military? <laughs> well, I, I I have thought of it because I've experienced it. Um, like I'm always grateful for him, but because we, he was so much higher than me, we never spent a ton of time together. So often, more often than not, I was the only person of color uh, in my mm-hmm. section or in my platoon, right? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I have I've had experiences, you know, kind of being the only person in the room that looks like you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that kind of leads to my next question, which is just wanted to find out a little bit more about your experience during your services, like responsibilities, your advancement, friendships, and I guess you know what was that experience like to be the only black person in 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 the entire, not just the room, but the entire base. You know, it, it was tough. It's not something I often thought about because I always focused on the work, like always trying to be the best I could be, because if anybody was going to knock me, it you know. I felt like I had to be the best I can be because I've had all these other things going against me. Right. So, you know, you'd get certain comments and things of that nature. So I was like, well, I'll prove you how good I am through my work ethic. Um, and because of that, you know, I made some good friendships. Um, you know, I was, had the ability to travel. And so with the engineers, what we did, we, we did a lot of explosives work. So much of our work was in uh, CFP gauge town, which is in New Brunswick. But mm-hmm. I was lucky enough. Well, I should say fortunate enough to play basketball on our national military team. Oh, so fantastic. that took me to um, all over our country, uh, playing basketball oh. and meeting some unique people. So the military has been good in that respect, in terms of opportunity, professional growth, uh, learning how to be uncomfortable, right? Which is a skill <laughs> we can all get better at. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's kind of that's kind of a little bit about that. So lots of traveling, lots of unique experiences, some not so healthy. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, when you think of, you know, racist attitudes or sexist attitudes or things of that nature, they can have lasting scars in individuals. And and I, I think for me through, you know, some good cognitive behavioral therapy, <laughs> uh, I've come to find out that, you know, sometimes people only see things from their point of view, right? And I often use this saying in my training and it says, we see the world not as they are, but as we are, right? Mm-hmm. And if you think about that, you realize that when people make judgments on you, they're making it from their own perspective and it really has nothing mm-hmm. to do with you. Right? And there's a lot of yeah. power in that. And so I've transferred that into my teaching. I, I often, I have a family member who's very conscious of what all the neighbors might think. And and I'm always like, they're probably not even thinking about you at all. Like you're, you're not the center of their universe just because, you know, you happen to be there, but people are so hung up on, on their history and what's taught them to think about what others think of them. And and I love that concept that the way our worldview is, and it's almost like a something to, to, to keep in mind whenever you're forming any kind of opinion on anything is that, okay, what view is this? This is my worldview. This isn't coming from the world. This is the way I see it. And so I need to maybe change the way I see things if I'm going to actually look at this in an accurate light. Would that be, would that be safe to say? With what yeah, you 100%. Teach? It starts with ourselves, right? ourselves like Mm -hmm. we have this idea that you know it's everybody else's job to fix us and teach us like we have to be the ones that are open to learning and growing Um, Mm -hmm. and then take that learning and growing and bounce it off our lived experience right and see where the gaps are yeah it takes a lot of of insight to be able to do that not not all of us are are ready or prepared to do that Mm -hmm. so you're now an entrepreneur and so can you tell us why you decided to start your own business versus you know, working for another large organization or, or going into security or some of the sort of expected slash traditional roles that a lot of the military, I don't know if, if they choose or if it seems to be a path that, that is put in front of them, but why did you choose entrepreneurship? 
I think that's an amazing um, question. And I, because I realized in the military what I didn't want to do. Um, and like subordinates and taking orders is great, but then you realize like people behind the ranks, they're people. Mm-hmm. And without that rank structure, they're just people. And sometimes you're like, you know, especially if they're rude about the way they treat you and mm-hmm. stuff like that, you're like, ah, this may not be for me. Right. But the one, the other thing is I've done a lot of teaching in the military. So, you know, I used to travel around and do a lot of explosive theory and, you know, just being in adverse situations constantly. So for me to get up in a room full of people, um, I don't get super uncomfortable as I, as much as I used to. So that's, it's just kind of transitioning in from that, I would think. And so did you have a chance to speak and train on uh, anti-racism or any of that area when you were in the military? Was that a focus of any of the training that you did or was it more specific to blowing shit up? Yeah, a little bit of both. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, so we did sharp training, sexual harassment and racism for prevention training. Um, But honestly, it was my own personal will to learn and grow, uh, to, to address my own unconscious bias, you know, um, to learn about what I, that's that, that phrase I just told you, um, we see the world not as there, but as we are. And so for me, it's really about that emotional intelligence part. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like, okay. There's four domains, self-awareness, self-regulation, uh, I think empathy and social skill. And so for me, I'm big on the self-awareness part, right? which is the ability to recognize my own moods and emotions and how it drives my behavior. Because that is everything. If you can control that, then you can control potential outbursts or you know how mm-hmm. you treat other people. Um, instead of flying off the handle, you realize yeah. that people, everybody's got their own stuff, right? Exactly. And so <laughs> exactly. That's, that's, what I've, that's really what I hone in on um, in every part of my life, actually, even as a parent. As a husband. And that's really hard to do. Uh, I have a, a background um, with a lot of trauma as a child. And so I've had to learn through therapy and including EMDR therapy. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it was was a miracle worker in my life. But every time that I would feel those same feelings and emotions that back during the trauma, you know, it changes your chemical makeup and suddenly you start to respond the same way that you did during the trauma, which doesn't serve you well anymore. And it's hard work to recognize that you're even doing that in the first place because you feel like, well, I'm, I'm upset and this is for good reason. And the reality is you're upset because you're almost like a little child back in that spot where, where the trauma happened. And so I congratulate you for doing that because it's been, it's been a long road for, for me to do. And I know that it's hard work. And so that's, that's excellent. Do you, do you think that your time in the military, and I think we've, you've kind of answered this to a certain degree, but did it affect your decision to um, start a business and also the type of business that you've, that you've started? Was that sort of a driving force for you? I think it was a catalyst. Again, like I, I knew I didn't want to, you know, I don't mind working for others because I've done it my whole life. Um, but my wife runs a small business and, and, you know, I worked in that for a number of years and I love that idea of, of autonomy. Right. Mm-hmm. And so autonomy with service is like gold to me. And so like I have my autonomy, but I also have the skill set to provide service to people. And so I guess it's similar to the military because I was providing service um, you know, I was constantly learning and growing, but the, I, I like the private world because it's, it's less rigid. Right. And so mm-hmm. what I've learned in my time is to approach things with the soft skill and not necessarily the hard military skill that I used to, 
look at the world, right? I'm kind of more of the soft skill, like empathy, relationship building, trust, self-awareness, all those types of things. And I think, I honestly think it's part of my own healing. Um, yes. I think it's part of my own healing because, you know, I always said, like, I never wanted to fight fire with fire because people would expect that. So what do I have to do is have to educate myself, right? And, and then and then present this material in a way that's um, digestible, but people can learn because I present a safe space. And I love the way that you you speak so far, and also when we spoke uh, when we first met in such plain language, because often we get into the lingo of of the whole um, space, and then it becomes almost you know, you have to be in the space to be able to really understand what's being said, but what the way you communicate everything is done so plainly. And I think that's very, very important for, for all of us to learn and also be able to accept it um, without feeling as though, you know, we have to know all of these phrases and, and acronyms and big words. And so then we, we feel like we're kind of missing out. And I think that that's, that's a real niche that you've got there. That's, it works fantastic for those of us with disabilities as well, because we do like to have the play in language and it's just, it sinks in a lot more easily. So with your recent um, retiring from the releasing from the military, what was that transition like? How, how did that go for you? It was, it wasn't that bad. You know, um, I feel like the the veteran support was was good um, in terms of like people checking in. Um, you know, the administrative like leaving or, or retiring wasn't nothing. You know, I was ready. Like, I, I, it took me more time to actually make the decision than it did do it. Cause I loved where I was asked, but I my family it was just too busy, and so um, I wouldn't say it was laborious or painful or anything like that. Well, that's that's excellent. Not the experience of everyone, of course. Do you, do you think that it makes a difference? And this is just your opinion. Uh, um, where someone is in the military when they transition to, as to where they wind up in civilian life, does that does it make a difference? I think so. Um, like, so I'm from a smaller place in eastern Canada, and if you know, if I was maybe in a, a more populated center where transition services were more robust. And there was different opportunities for people to transfer into civilian career with, you know, with minimal hoops and hurdles. I think that would have been beneficial because none of that stuff's offered, you know, like where we're from, right? Or if like the programming's not right in your face as if I was in Ottawa or if I was in a bigger major center. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So your business currently specializes in helping uh, working professionals develop, um, but you also have experience as an academic advisor. And I guess both of those roles provide guidance, but, but do you approach them differently in, in how you work with you know, working professionals versus students? And tell us a bit about the academic work that you do. I'd like to hear more. So the, the, the question is, no, I treated both people but treat them the same because um, my goal is to help people. I want to add value and solve problems, right? And for me, that makes me happy. So those things together, it's like when people ask what's happiness, I say, you know, helping people while pursuing your goals, if that makes any mm -hmm. sense. And so it for does. me, I've kind of treated them similar. Um, mind you, you, you got to be considered of age appropriateness and who, where they are in their journey, their life's journey. But in terms of academic advising, I, um, I do a lot of listening. Because, you know, I've learned that sometimes we can be interrupters, right? So someone's telling you something, you go, oh, wait, but, and you try to fix it for them. Mm -hmm. um, and I was an interrupter, I'll admit it. <laughs> but um, now I just, I listen. 
And I have a little formula I use to ask certain questions to, to get certain answers. And this is a coaching technique I use. Um, mm-hmm. And it just allows them to kind of solve their own problems as opposed to me trying to fix it for them. And that is where the learning is. And so mm-hmm. when I do presentations, um, and if I am lucky enough to have enough time, I do breakout space where adult learners can get together and digest the material to collectively as opposed to me just talking to them, because as you, you're probably aware of, there's multiple means or multiple ways to learn, right? Um, and I consider that. I do incorporate UDL and things of that nature when I teach. What's Universal UDL? Design for Learning. UDL. Okay, yeah. Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons we do this podcast is because there there are many ways that people learn. And, and maybe you can learn every way, but some ways you learn better than other ways. And so for us, we, we wanted to be able to share our message about supplier diversity, but also veterans and folks with disabilities in this format uh, as well. So I, I love that thought. And and because we support uh, folks with disabilities, again, we're always trying to to figure out me- different methods to uh, to be able to help people understand and learn. So, um, and I, I like that approach. So, so what would be some of the um, um, presentations that you would do? Like what, what topics would they involve? Topics? Um, well, there's lots of them. But the ones off the top of my head that, I, that I'm really focused on are, of course, the self-awareness piece. Um, I talk a lot about like leadership theories and styles. Uh, what is EDI, equity, diversity, inclusion? What are they? And how do they show up in our daily lives? Um resilience, development Mm. of core relationships, um, unconscious bias. What is Mm -hmm. it? How did it originate? What happened? How does it show up in our daily life? Um, And then, of course, there's microaggressions attached to that. I do anti-black racism. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I also talk about the different types of racism and the history of racism, um, the history of the legacy of slavery, Uh, talk about colonialism, um, and with the diversity piece, like it's important, like it's more than just race, right? It's gender, it's sexual orientation, it's age, it's where you're from, your, your socioeconomic status. Like there's so many mm-hmm. things to discuss with that. So I leave no stone unturned. Um, and every session I teach normally goes in one way or the other, because normally someone in the a participant will identify with something. And then, you know, if we want to go down that rabbit hole, we do, um, mm-hmm. because that's where the learning happens. And so does it wind up in some really um, stimulating conversations? <laughs> I mean, do, are there are there big, you know, conversations that happen? Do people get angry? Do you have to, I mean, I, I, I just want to sit in and hear everything you have to say, especially after you've described all that. But I'm so curious to know what type, what types of results and responses you've had from people over the years. So I think a good facilitator can manage rabbit hole conversations, right? Like we can go mm-hmm. down, but we got to stick our head up. Um, and so I always... I always um, prelude every um, presentation with with um, difficult conversation, right? Like trigger warnings and things of that nature. Um, and so do people get upset? Yes, I've had tears. Yes, I've had mm-hmm. people. Uh, and I don't want to say get upset, but be emotional, right? Okay. And what I like to see is when the greater group recognizes that vulnerability and says, hey, thanks for sharing. Like, mm-hmm. it's okay, you know. I feel like and that. do you see that in your experience with working professionals as much as you do with students? Uh, my sense of students would be more willing to do that group acceptance, but I, I may be wrong. Uh, actually, the adult learners, like the professionals are surprising. 
especially mm-hmm. the ones that are into lifelong learning and they get it like, you know, no one knows everything. And so we're in an environment where we can learn, learn in a safe way. Uh, it's those professionals, especially like leaders. I find mm-hmm. they're the most um, talkative because they're the ones, one, they're, they're not afraid to speak from first, right? Um, and two, they lean into the discomfort of the conversations, especially if they can read the temperature of their staff, right? And yeah. so I find the leaders are the ones that um, are the most engaged, I guess we'll say. Okay. Right. And have you found circumstances where where you were um, presenting in front of people who were sort of mandated to be there and maybe not happy to be there. And so there was reticence to, to take in what you say. Well, I always tell folks like I, I would never mandate this work. Um, Cause I call it like leadership development and I don't like, Oh, you have to do this because when you tell an adult, they have to do something. Normally they, they turn on the off button. It's like, right. You know, so I, you know, framing it is one, one part of it. Um, but n- not to my knowledge, you know, not to my knowledge, but I, but I have had circumstances where people walk in and they're, I know they're, they they do not want to be there. Right. Mm, Probably for yeah. those reasons you just mentioned, but by the end of it, they're the ones that are talking and then their feedback forms are really good. And I was like, wow, like, you know, <laughs> and, and they're the wins. Yeah. They're the, they're the wins for me because I'm, ah, I got to that person. Yeah. Uh, in another life uh, I, I worked and we would, we would refer to that person as the heckler the heckler in the crowd. Mm -hmm. And those are the ones that are probably looking for the most attention in my experience. And so when you include them and ask their perspective and opinion, often they're so belligerent, they're not used to people asking them Mm -hmm. to share their opinion because they're always willing to do it so readily anyhow. And I find that that really helps to bring people around. So I guess you've got sort of that same experience where, where they get that inclusion and Next thing you know, and once the hecklers come around, then then they heckle on behalf of you, right? Then you're the biggest ally. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't mind. I don't mind hecklers. Um, it's about including them because again, they're acting that way for a reason. Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm so enjoying this conversation. Um, and so when it goes offline, I would love to uh, find out how I get to be part of some of these presentations and hear what you have to say, if if that's possible. Um, so during your time in the military. And also in academia and as an entrepreneur, have you noticed changes in how discrimination is addressed? I think it depends where you're, you're at in, in all three of those, those circumstances. But uh, I do feel that it's not addressed adequately because sometimes it's not even noticed. So when you think about discrimination, like there's different forms. There's individual, like interpersonal. You say something to someone, you know. It is what it is. There's the systemic um, part of it, you know, who makes more money, who makes, you know, wage parity, mm-hmm. gender parity uh, in terms of uh, in terms of um, salary. Um, but then there's the, the bias part of it. And that's where you see like the microaggressions and things that are kind of not on the surface. Um, and they live they live in all of us, actually, these mm-hmm. what I call, you know, little mind traps like. And so. I would say we like to think we address it, but it's so permeated in our society. Sometimes it's hard to see unless it's overt. What, what's an example of a microaggression that you've, you've run into? Oh, I've actually had some perpetrated against me. So let's just define it. So Good. an unconscious bias or mind trap is a little, you know, it's something that lives deep down in your brain unless it's comes, um, it's brought to the surface through fear 
or you're being scared. Um, sometimes they just lay dormant, right? And but sometimes they they bubble to the top, and they come out in subtle ways. And so, for an example, so I call a microaggression a small, normally unintentional act of aggression. So one time I was in my office and I got a phone call from a, a lady. She wanted to bring her son in to talk about some programming. I was like, sure. This is as my student advisor. And so when she came to my door a week later, because I set up the appointment with her, um, I said, hey, welcome to my office. I'm Brad. And she looked at me. She said, oh, you speak different. You didn't sound like you, you, you the, the person on the phone. Now, can you spot the microaggression there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. the assumption is I was going to open the door and be like, yo, what up, baby girl? Welcome to my yeah. office because I'm a person of color, you know, <laughs> yeah. or have some like broken English or something. So the, the microaggression here is that she says, I speak good. Um, <laughs> what she's really trying to say is you don't sound like what the black people on TV or the black people. And also are. she doesn't speak good. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> when she says I speak good. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, that, I've had that happen before. And women have this, like, microaggressions, like, for example, I've been in spaces where we're taking notes and, like, the pen's kind of thrown down to to the, you know, the female in the room to take the notes, right? Like, mm-hmm. that, even though that's overt, some people don't see that. I see that as, like, what? You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. They wouldn't want my to, me to take the notes because no one can understand much of what I write. In fact, lots of times I can't. So, mm. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm just wondering as as we get. I mean, because uh, so many things have happened recently in the last few years, um, and I don't really want to name all of them, but we know that there's so many things that have happened that have really brought racism to the to the real forefront of things. And and so I just wondered if. Um, if you've seen sort of more of a positive move in terms of how discrimination is dealt with in since then, uh, because I mean, I sort of see it, but I'm not looking at it from the same mindset or lens that you are. So I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Is, is your experience getting any smoother in that area or is it sort of stagnated, stayed the same? I think that voices are being heard and that people are starting to understand that injustices exist. I think that's the first step. Um, and so, you know, it's it's ironic you're asking me this because I have a family friend who lives in a predominantly white neighborhood. Um, he's black, his wife is white, and they have two um, visibly black children. And their host got egged the other night. Mm. And, um, and they kind of know who's did it. And so, yes, overt acts exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the age of social, too, it's a little bit different because people can be a little bit more subtle and, you know, on their cell phones. But would I say it has lessened? No. Would I say it's more record? People are more conscious that it exists. Yes. Um, especially in the interpersonal, more, um, you know, out there aspects. But again, it's the unconscious bias part that people aren't understanding yet. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that we all have it. We all have these little mm-hmm. ideas or stereotypes about other people. It's just, we never, think about it. Like, where do they come from? Why do I think like this? You know? Mm-hmm. And that's what mm-hmm. I get into the self-awareness piece. I have these kinds of conversations with my mom all the time. Uh, and, and so, you know, she will, she will say the, the, I, that she's not racist. Um, and yet I, I say, I think we all are mom. I, I don't think we can help it because we, it, you know, that's just the way that this, our society has been designed. Um, and it's, I don't want to say it's okay to be racist, but it's okay to recognize, I guess, that you, that you, have 
the ability to be racist because all of these things uh, have taught you to be that way sort of inherently and, and it's on us to. So anyway, it's, it's a fun exercise that the two of us do because she's in her uh, mid to late seventies now. And so, you know, this is sometimes a difficult conversation for her to recognize, oh my goodness. Uh, and then when you see the light bulb come on, so we really enjoy it. But I also kind of explore too, and, and, it, and it's discrimination of, of, of every kind and, and not necessarily just based on, on people's skin color that, that we kind of explore together. And so it's just very fun conversations uh, and for but but it is so deeply ingrained into our lives here in Canada and, and specifically in North America uh, that we don't even understand when it's happening so what advice do you have for listeners who want to address their own biases again it starts with self self-awareness and I know that sounds cliche um, and but it really starts with recognizing and understanding your own moods and emotions and how they drive your behavior. Not only recognizing them, but recognizing where they come from. Uh, is it, is it, a, is it a, a nature thing? Like, you know, you're born this way or is it a nurture thing? Are you conditioned through where you grew up, the media you consume, uh, your friends, the people you admire, all of those types of things. And I guess maybe to learn to admit when you're wrong, and, and do better once you know better mm -hmm. would be something I, I would try to do. So what advice do you have for people who are seeing biases in others around them? Like how do you suggest they, uh, they address that or should they even address that? That's a very good question. And so when we think of witnessing something um, and not doing some, anything about it, we call that a bystander, right? Mm -hmm. um, someone that speaks up, for another group speaks up and not over another group we call them allies and so for allies if they want to address something um like a comment made by somebody the first thing they want to do is pause you know did i hear that the second thing you want to do is acknowledge or ask and say excuse me did you just say what i think you said mm. right acknowledge get them to acknowledge it ask them the questions the next is to listen for that response and then the last part is to speak your truth. Give them a chance to say, hey, I didn't mean it like that, or it came out the wrong way, or yes, I meant it. And then you mm -hmm. speak your truth. So pause for a second. Confirm that that's indeed what they did say. Um, ask for, did they really mean it for a sort of clarification on what they're saying? And then based on that response, then speak your truth. That's it. Would you speak, and it, would you speak it either way, whether their response was positive or negative? 100%. 100%. Yeah. And so that and that's a tool. That's a tool from oh, it's called PALS. You can I think it's from the University of Michigan. They have a really good okay. um yeah, PALS. I think it was called PALS and that that's what that's where that's come comes from. Yeah, that's that's a very good technique. I'm going to implement that myself. Sometimes uh, we're, we're, we're at the end of our time now, but I've really enjoyed this conversation. And like I said, I, I want to learn so much more from you. But um, sometimes I ask people at the end of our podcast, if, if, if I presented to you like a genie in a bottle and said, okay, you get one wish, you only get one, I'm taking the other two. Um, what would you wish for in terms of, let's, let's stick with Canada, in terms of Canadian society as, as, as uh, what would be your sort of, yeah, what would be your wish to try and uh, make things better from a discrimination and racism perspective in Canada? What one thing? I would Somebody say, could just put that down. And, that's this is and a big one, but I would say less polarization and seeing difference as an asset. 
Oh, yes. I love that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that is fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Bradley. I really appreciate it. And thank you for just like taking a chance and being on the podcast, even though we hardly even know each other and only met in the, the one conversation. So I really, really enjoyed having you here. And I appreciate all that you've shared with us. Thank you so much for your time. And um, thank you for your work. Thank you. And thanks again for joining us today. So for more supplier diversity content, check us out at iwscc.ca. You can find us on YouTube, uh, listen to the podcast on your uh, favorite uh, podcast platform. Uh, there's new episodes every month and, uh, and a lot more going on with our organization. So follow us on social media. And thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you again next time. Bye-bye.